Hey, this is Dave DeCamp from Antiwar.com, and this is Antiwar News for Friday, September 23rd, 2022. This is the last show for the week. I'll be back after the weekend. But for now, we got stuff to talk about. The first story at the top of Antiwar.com, Dmitry Medvedev, the former Russian president who currently serves as the deputy chair of the on the Russian Security Council, he said on Thursday that Russia could use nuclear weapons to protect uh, the territories of Ukraine that it will absorb after referendums are held. So referendums to join Russia will be held in Ukrainian-controlled territories, uh, sorry, Russian-controlled territories in Ukraine, which includes the Donbass republics of Donetsk and Luhansk, Kherson and Zaporizhia regions. And those are starting Friday, so you're, we're going to see reports about those referendums very soon. Um, and he said these referendums will be held and these territories will be accepted into Russia. And he said that by uh, the protection of these territories will be strengthened by joining Russia. He said, quote, Russia announced that not only mobilization capabilities, but also any Russian weapons, including strategic nuclear weapons and weapons based on new principles, could be used for such protection, end quote. So if you remember when Putin ordered his mobilization, he warned um, that Russia will use any weapons at its disposal to protect its territorial integrity, including nuclear weapons. And, you know, he kind of inferred that this means these territories that they're going to uh, absorb after these referendums. And here Medvedev is... Uh, saying it explicitly, basically, yeah, that this means after these referendums, attacks on these regions are going to be treated as attacks on Russian territory. And we're telling you, we could potentially use nuclear weapons. Um, so it's a very, you know, this is the result, as I said yesterday, this is what the result of the U.S., um, you know, egging Ukraine on in this war and shipping it billions of dollars and helping with intelligence and uh, encouraging it to strike Crimea and just all this stuff kind of culminating into what is just uh, such a, a scary scenario here now moving forward. Um, and the U.S., I'll go over more in the next story. The U.S. is showing no sign of reconsidering its policy in light of these uh, warnings and these referendums. Um of this serious escalation. So the next one, this is uh, the U.S. Blinken says that the U.S. will continue to support Ukraine despite the nuclear warnings. So Blinken delivered a speech to the U.N. Security Council on Thursday, and he signaled that there, there will be no change to the U.S. policy of supporting Ukraine. Um, Blinken said in this speech that it was up to Putin to end the war and that the U.S. would continue arming Ukraine. He said, quote, because if Russia stops fighting, the war ends. If Ukraine stops fighting, Ukraine ends. That's why we will continue to support Ukraine as it defends itself and strengthen its hand to achieve a diplomatic solution on just terms at a negotiating table, end quote. So that's kind of been the Biden administration's line throughout this war is that they 
when you ask them if they support negotiations, they say, oh, oh, of course, diplomat, we, there, there will be a diplomatic solution, but our role is to give Ukraine all these weapons so they get better leverage in these negotiations. But at the same time, they've completely abandoned diplomacy with Russia. They haven't shown any sign of trying to foster negotiations between the two sides, which when you know the U.S. and Russia cannot go to war, the U.S. and NATO and Russia cannot go to war because of the risk of a nuclear catastrophe. But that just doesn't seem to be an issue now for the Biden administration, for the people that are pushing this policy. Um, and they're just pledging to continue supporting Ukraine. Um, and Blinken, he also, uh, I'll just to point out with Blinken, I mean, talking about diplomacy, he has only spoken with Sergei Lavrov one time since February 24th, since Russia invaded, just once. And they talked about a prisoner swap. They didn't even talk about the war in Ukraine. Um, so he's completely failed his job as a diplomat. Uh, you know, as a secretary of state, he's supposed to be the America's top diplomat, but he has totally failed in that role. Uh, he also criticized Russia for the referendums, uh, calling it a dangerous escalation. And he called on the Security Council to send a message uh, against Russia's nuclear threat. And Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov, he also addressed the Security Council, and he made clear that Moscow views the U.S. and its allies as a party to the conflict. He said, quote, what's particularly cynical is the position of the states that are pumping Ukraine full of weapons and training their soldiers, end quote. So on top of sending all these weapons in, the U.S. has been training Ukrainians uh, at its bases in Germany and in other undisclosed places in Europe. We know that there's a CIA presence on the ground, according to reporting from the New York Times. There's also British special operations forces on the ground, according to the Times of London and also the New York Times. Um, so they're very intimately involved in this war. And he said that Ukraine's Western backers, they want to weaken Russia, which Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin, he said that outright back in April. Um, so it's not some conspiracy that this war is about weakening Russia. They said it. Um, and what's funny is there was a report, I think it was NBC News, uh, that said Biden kind of scolded Austin for that rhetoric. Um, you know, it's tough to know how true any of reports like that are, but what was funny about it, I mean, it's not really funny, was that it said in the report that that is the U.S. policy to weaken Russia, but we shouldn't be saying it out loud. Um, so it's definitely what they're trying to do is hurt Russia. So from Russia's standpoint, they're at war, not just with Ukraine, but with the U.S. and NATO. Lavrov said, quote, that policy means the direct involvement of the West in the conflict. End quote. So right now where we are is that Russia is saying the U.S., NATO are directly involved in this conflict. They're a party to the conflict and they're saying they're going to absorb these territories and any attacks on them uh, will be attacks on Russian territory, which they will be willing to defend with nuclear weapons. So um, any rational ad administration would say, OK, we need to you know, get to the table here and slow things down. But that's not what's happening. All right, the next one, uh, Russia and Ukraine, they carry out a major prisoner swap brokered by Turkey and Saudi Arabia. So Russia and Ukraine, they, they made this swap that involved nearly 300 people. Uh, Ukraine said on Wednesday that it freed 215 people from Russia, including commanders of the neo-Nazi Azov Battalion. That is the infamous 
neo-Nazi militia that was absorbed by Ukraine's National Guard in 2014. And they were fighting Russia in uh, Mariupol. Uh, There was a major battle in that city earlier in the war, and they surrendered to Russian forces. And also among the 215 people were 10 foreign nationals, including five British and two Americans. In exchange, Ukraine released 55 Russians and pro-Russian Ukrainians, including Viktor Medvedchuk. Medvedchuk is a Ukrainian politician who has ties to Putin, but he previously led Ukraine's largest opposition party in parliament, Opposition Platform for Life. That's the party name. So he was the opposition leader in parliament, but he was put under house arrest by Zelensky uh, in 2021, before the war, uh, before Russia's invasion. And that was over allegations that he exploited natural resources in Crimea. They've also accused him of supporting the separatists in the Donbass, um, which he denies. Um, but around the, after Russia invaded, he escaped house arrest, but he was later captured. And around the same time, Zelensky banned his party, the opposition platform, for life and 10 other opposition parties a source told this is according to middle east eye i think they have uh, a lot of turkish sources so a source told middle east eye that russian president that putin appealed directly to erdogan the turkish president to facilitate the release of medvedchuk when the two leaders met in sochi back in august and erdogan later visited ukraine and reached an understanding with zelensky that Uh, he could be released for about 200 prisoners of war. Um, So for one guy, Russia released 200 prisoners of war. And then Middle East Eye also cited a Saudi official who said um, Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman facilitated the release of the 10 foreign nationals, which included a British man and a Moroccan man who were sentenced to death by the Donetsk People's Republic. So if you remember, that was a big deal when it first happened they were sentenced to death by the uh donbass separatists and um of all people (laughs) the saudis got them uh released and this is what what it's just interesting to see who has emerged as the brokers uh in this war while the u.s is just backing ukraine and is not interested in diplomacy at all it's it's turkey and saudi arabia uh, negotiating these deals all right um Next one here, this is just a, this is an article from Reuters. Um, 17 members of Congress told Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin to speed up a Pentagon security review of a Ukrainian request for large armable drones, according to a a letter dated Wednesday and seen by Reuters. So these are um, drones, uh, MQ-1C Gray Eagle drones that could be used for airstrikes Uh, There's been a plan to sell them to Ukraine, but it's been stalled because I I believe it was the Pentagon uh, because of a fear that the drone's sophisticated surveillance equipment might fall into enemy hands. Um, So that's what they're concerned about, is that these drones could end up in Russia's hands and they could get the technology to them. Uh, Even though, you know, these types of drones, they could launch potentially launch strikes in, in Russian territory, although they could probably be um, shut down, uh, shot down as well. But 
still, I mean, this is a pretty serious uh, aircraft to be sending Ukraine. Uh, but Congress is hoping that they push this through quicker. Um, and that's what this this letter is about. So more an escalation of military aid. That would be a pretty serious escalation because they haven't sent drones like that. They've sent smaller uh, kamikaze style drones. Um, but I just want to take a moment to mention our sponsor, How the West Brought War to Ukraine by Benjamin Ablo. It is a great summary of all the U.S. and NATO and other Western provocations that provoked the war that we're seeing today. And it gets into the U.S. involvement in the 2014 coup that ousted Viktor Yanukovych, the former Ukrainian president. And the good news is it's the book is only $10. You could buy it on Amazon. Uh, it's about 60 to 70 pages. And he just released the uh, ebook version, the Kindle version, which you can go buy for only 99 cents. So if you don't have the money for the book, go read the Kindle version. It's uh, it's the cheapest price that you could possibly sell it at. He just wants to get this message out there. Um, and he wants to get people reading this book and absorbing these facts. So go buy it, uh, whether it's the hard copy or the ebook. And it, you support a good author who's trying to get a message out, help support the show. You could spread the word, buy some copies for other people if uh, you think it's a good book. Um, but that's it. Uh, and back to the news here. So the EU is split on giving asylum to Russians fleeing mobilization. An EU spokeswoman for the European Commission said Thursday that the bloc should give asylum to Russians fleeing the mobilization order, but the EU's members are not on the same page. Um, so this is an EU spokeswoman for migration. She said that the situation is unprecedented and that work is ongoing between EU members to find a common approach. So as I covered yesterday, the Baltic states of Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia They've already come out against giving refuge to Russians who are looking to avoid the draft. They've shut down uh, their borders to virtually all Russians with very few exemptions. And it's you know part of this collective punishment against the Russian people, um, even the ones that don't that want to you know flee to avoid having to go fight this war. And then on Thursday, the Czech Republic uh, said they also came out against it. They said they would not grant humanitarian visas for Russians fleeing the mobilization. The Czech foreign minister said, quote, I understand that Russians are fleeing from ever more desperate decisions by Putin, but those running because they don't want to fulfill a duty imposed by their own government, they don't meet the criteria for humanitarian visa, end quote. So it's just strange, you know, because he, they're very against Russia and their war. But they're saying, oh, just, you know, if you don't want to do something that your government wants you to do, that doesn't mean you can uh, you get refuge here. Um, it's just kind of a weird way to put it, I think. Uh, but over in Germany, there uh, several officials have signaled that uh, Berlin would be willing to take in Russians who don't want to be drafted. Um, this is kind of the, how the lines have fallen on all of most of these issues when it comes to supporting Ukraine and taking action against Russia. The more Eastern NATO countries are more hawkish, while over in Western Europe, Germany and France are more favorable of negotiations and, and not as tough sanctions, although they're still going along. At the end of the day, they're still going along with everything while their economies are really uh, taking a hit. 
Um, but I haven't seen France, French officials say anything yet about this, but Germany is, it's they're, they're, they seem interested. Um, but uh, I just think it's, it's, it really shows the collective nature of sanctions and stuff that they're really just trying to hurt any ordinary Russians for the most part, even the ones that are against the war and, and are willing to flee their home uh, to avoid it. Um, but so we'll see it. I don't think the EU is really going to come to a consensus on this. And that's what the next article is also about. Is the uh, EU not coming to a consensus on the next round of Russia sanctions? So the European Union's leadership wants to issue new sanctions against Russia in response to these planned referendums. But the EU has struggled to reach a consensus on the issue as sanctions have backfired and Europeans are facing soaring energy prices and winter is approaching. So on the sidelines of the UN General Assembly in New York, the EU foreign policy chief, Joseph Burrell, said that the bloc would work quickly to impose new sanctions although he didn't detail what those new sanctions might be. He said that he's sure that they'll be able to find a unanimous agreement, but that seems unlikely as there is growing opposition to this policy, which is being led by Hungary. Hungary has been the most outspoken in its opposition to sanctions, forced them to alter other sanctions. They've been exempt from the Russian oil ban that's supposed to take effect in December because they're very reliant on Russian oil and they're landlocked and, uh, you know, they get everything by, for the most part, by pipelines. So that's just not feasible for them. Um, but the country's governing party, Fidesz, which is led by Prime Minister Viktor Orban, they're saying that they're going to hold a national poll on sanctions policy to see how much popular support it has. So they're going to poll the people of Hungary and say what they think of EU sanctions. And, um, you know, they're saying this, Hungary's saying that the sanctions are causing harm, they're destroying Europe's economy, and that they have to convince European decision makers, the members of the elite, as they are calling them, that they should not maintain the energy sanctions. Not just that they shouldn't add more sanctions, that they should not maintain the sanctions. It sounds like they're calling to lift the sanctions, to scrap sanctions. And this poll would be an informal survey known as a national consultation. They've done this for other issues, Orban's uh, government. And Hungarians, they can complete it online or by mail. And the results of the poll could be used to debate sanctions with the EU. And uh, Hungarian media reported this week that Orban favors scrapping sanctions on Russia altogether. Um, so, uh, you know, and, and, and foreign policy decisions in the EU, they need all 27 members to agree. Um, and, you know, Hungary has been fighting this stuff, but they're also, you know, the EU's trying to cut them to not give them funding and things like that. So they've also gone along to some extent. Um, the next one, this is from Kyle Anzalone at the Libertarian Institute and Connor Freeman. And, uh, I just saw this was posted. I haven't seen this article yet, but the South Korean president calls U.S. legislatures. Um, I want to keep this show family friendly, so he called them F-worders. <laughs> uh, he was caught on a hot mic insulting President Biden on Wednesday. So he referred to Congress by this slur because uh, the pr President Biden apparently pledged $6 billion in humanitarian aid for South Korea and deployed an American aircraft carrier there for the first time in a while. Um, 
but he's saying Congress could, I guess he's worried he's insulting Congress because he's worried that they might not pass this, uh, this aid bill. And, uh, he's saying that Biden would lose face, you know, if they didn't pass it. Um, but it's just funny, but this stuff is an example of the growing ties between Washington and Seoul. You know, the U S, um, is expanding military ties with South Korea. They just restarted doing major military drills with them. And tensions are really high again with North Korea. The Biden administration hasn't made any, any progress in that area. And, uh, the South Korean president, Yoon, he, he's more hawkish, uh, than his predecessor on that issue. Um, all right. Oh, we left up the one from yesterday about Somalia just because it's an important story and I don't think it really got much attention anywhere, but I just have to make, uh, I said something yesterday that wasn't quite right on this. Um, I said that, you know, the U S backed an Ethiopian invasion of Somalia in 2006. And that's, uh, what led to the rise of Al-Shabaab. But one thing I said that was wrong is that WikiLeaks showed us that the U S twisted Ethiopia's arm to invade but that's not right. That was based on an article that I saw, but there isn't actually a WikiLeaks cable that said that. And I just don't want to spread any wrong information about this issue and about WikiLeaks. Uh, but the US certainly did back the invasion, but we don't know if they really leaned, like had to convince them to do it like that article said. But I linked to in this article, uh, this is from Scott Horton, it's uh, a chapter of his book, Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism, and it's the chapter on Somalia, and it details all the U.S. intervention in that country and just the failed policy and how it's it's just such thorough work as he always does. And, and if people want to just learn the background, you know, this chapter is right on antiwar.com and you can go uh, go read it because people need to know how the U.S., what U.S. intervention did to that country and how they're justifying uh, this new bombing campaign against Al-Shabaab. I shouldn't say new. It's been going on for so long now. Uh, but, you know, they're just not the threat that they're made out to be. All right. Again, I just apologize for saying that uh, thing that wasn't right. And then the next one here is from Jason Ditz. Canada extends its Iraq war mission by another 12 months. Um, so with just hours left in its military mandate on the Iraq-ISIS war, Canada's defense minister announced a one-year extension on Thursday evening. So Canada is in Iraq, is involved in this anti-ISIS coalition, part of the U.S.-led uh, operation there. And um, a few hundred troops from Canada are in Iraq, and they're also stationed in Jordan and Lebanon, which are training missions that they say are related to ISIS. So really, this is just a reminder that this mission is still going on. Um, U.S. troops are still in Iraq. About uh, 2,500, I believe, are are still there. They recently changed the name of the mission to a combat one. To it, they well, they they said that they changed it from combat to a training mission, but it really didn't change at all. Um, really, the U.S. presence in Iraq is just a tripwire for a conflict with uh, the Shia militias that are opposed to the U.S. presence there. And there are other elements that are opposed to the U.S. presence there. Um, but yeah, this is just really a reminder that this operation is still going. Uh, but that is it for the news for the day. Um, we got a lot of good viewpoints, as always. But uh, I want to remind you guys, 
October 8th at the Department of Justice in Washington, D.C. There will be a protest for Julian Assange. I will be there. I will be speaking. There's another pretty good lineup of speakers. I know uh, Chris Hedges is going to be there. Ben Cohen, the co-founder of Ben and Jerry's. Um, there's going to be a lot of other big names there. I got to get the complete list. I know Eliza Blue. She is a human trafficking uh, rights advocate. Um, she's going to be speaking there. And Garland Nixon. He's a radio host, political analyst. Um, man, I meant to have this all in front of me today, but I'll definitely keep you posted on that. But uh, I mean, check out my Twitter. I've been sharing and retweeting stuff about that. And uh, you guys should uh, get on it. If you're not in the area, you know, you could pr help promote uh, the protests and stuff like that on social media. Um, but that's it for, for me for today. For the week, I'll be back after the weekend. If we make it through the weekend, things are looking pretty bad. But uh, um, yeah, and you could contact the show news at antiwar.com. If you're watching on YouTube, you could also watch on Odyssey. You can listen to the podcast audio download. Um, you know, we're all over the place, but, uh, thanks for listening and I'll see you guys next week.